Stand up with Pete Dominic. With Pete Dominic on Indy Sirius XM 104. All right. As I mentioned earlier, today is Holocaust Remembrance Day, ending today at sundown, and we're having. We've invited a number of different guests to uh, join the conversation. Just talked to Rabbi Wexler from uh, Israel, and now, well, he's uh, he's American. He's was in Israel. And now we're going to uh, be talking to the director of the Center for Prevention of Genocide at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. He was also a reporter and editor for the Washington Post since 1985. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was a non-resident fellow of the German uh, Marshall Fund and a former media fellow at the Hoover Institute Institution at Stanford University. Uh, we're joined by him now, uh, and we were about a year ago. Uh, Mike Abramowitz, uh, thank you very much for joining us again. Pete, it's great to be here, and I'm very impressed with your memory. I uh, give all the credit to uh, my producer, Alfred. <laughs> he said, you know, he, he he said, you know, we should have that guy. He was listening. I'm sorry. He, last year when we were talking, you said something about a year from now we'll talk. Alfred put it in his calendar, and the calendar update came up. So there you have it. That's, that's amazing. Thank you, Alfred. It's fun to be here, and thanks for having me. Um, let's uh, play a little bit from uh, uh, that conversation that you that you reference. Uh, we had Mike on last year on the program to discuss President Obama's genocide board. I was a bit cynical that the board was uh, was maybe just political posturing. Sometimes these presidential commissions and boards get created and they don't follow up. Um, and here here is uh, April twenty third, two thousand twelve. Let's take a listen. I think this is a good faith effort by this president to try to get ahead of the curve. You know, in a year, if you have me on your show and we can look and see what's happened, we can then, you know, start to really uh, give a track record. Well, uh, Alfred, my producer, put in a contact, uh, an an alert in his calendar uh, for a year from now. uh, Michael, we will do just that, I promise you, if Alfred is still employed with us. Uh, Put it in (laughs) my That's your choice. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) We'll fire him the day before so we don't have to. No, this is. We actually, uh, Michael, we did fire him twice this year. Uh, but he's still with us. So uh, anyway, I'm joking around. Uh, let's talk on a volunteer basis, though. <laughs> he volunteers now. Uh, it's been a year. Right. Talk to me. So I th- I think that my comment from about a year ago is still valid. I definitely don't think that this was political cover, political posturing. I think that the uh, this is a very serious effort by the administration to try to essentially make the government more uh, uh, effective in dealing with a problem that comes up really every administration. What do you do about mass killing? What do you do about the threat of mass killing? And, you know, as you look around the world today, you know, you've got some real cases in play. Obviously, everyone has seen the news with Syria, uh, close to 100,000 deaths, a two-year civil war. Uh, that that situation is, is a terrible situation. And from, from the looks of it now, it's not getting any better. But there are also less publicized situations in which you have atrocities either taking place or people in real risk. I mean, the one that, you know, that I think a lot of people here think about is Darfur. Still two million people displaced in Darfur. Uh, the conflict is less intense than it was when it started, but it's still a very dangerous situation. You have the Democratic Republic of Congo. Over the last 20 years, several million people have died. And there's been periodic fighting and, and atrocities taking place there. You've also got situations uh, like in uh, Burma, where there's been essentially pogroms against Muslim people uh, by uh, uh, by groups there uh, in the last several months. 
so the situation is still very dangerous for civilians around the world in certain countries. And as far as the Atrocities Prevention Board is taking place, is concerned, they have been meeting every month. They get intelligence reports. They organize plans. Uh, I think, you know, I think a fair... A uh, statement would be that in certain cases, uh, I think they've made a difference in helping put greater government attention on problems. I would say a great case there is Kenya, which just experienced uh, elections. The last time they had, they had elections in Kenya, several, several thousand people died in ethnic uh, violence. Uh, we haven't seen that uh, to yet. But I think in other cases, you know, and I think clearly Syria is an example, they've been less effective. So with many government institutions and initiatives, you, you see a mixed record. And I think, but I do think, going back to what I said a year ago, I do think this was not political cover. I think it was a serious effort. Um, well, let's, that, that, that's good to hear. It's really good to hear. But let, I mean, you're on, you're on this, uh, I mean, your, your, your job is the, as the director of the Center for the Prevention of Genocide and at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, it would seem that when you hear about, you know, when you hear the words genocide prevention uh, and when you talk about some of these situations that are happening right now in current day, it would seem that, that these should be easy to prevent. Genocide is not easy to prevent. It's often complex. Uh, there's so many different situations and, and parties and interests. But let's go back to the 30s and talk about uh, the Holocaust, which was a genocide of well over six million Jews, we now know, not to mention uh, the gypsies, the homosexuals, uh, the, the, uh, those that are, have uh, different kinds of handicaps and so on, were also uh, executed in an effort to kind of create this quote-unquote master race or whatever madness uh, the purposes were, were cited. But, but at that time, as you know uh, better than most, Michael, uh, many in America, including the government, looked the other way. Uh, for a very long time, right? Absolutely. I think that's a very good point. I think it's an important point to make today on Holocaust Remembrance Day. I'd like to come back to, to you know, what the museum is doing in general, but let's just talk about the point that you made about prevention. Prevention is not easy. And if you look through history, you know, despite all the rhetoric, uh, we have done a relatively poor job of preventing. And I think the Holocaust is exhibit number one. Is, uh, you know, what's interesting when you study the Holocaust and when you really look at it deeply, as we do at the museum, one thing that really sticks out is that the mass killing of the Nazis essentially didn't really start until 1941. Uh, the Nazis came to power in 1933, and if you come to our museum, uh, I hope many of your listeners either have or, or will do, you come to the opening floor of the exhibition, it really focuses on uh, what happened between 1933 and 1941, which is uh, a, a consolidation of power by the Nazis, an effort to really uh, dehumanize and uh, delegitimate de 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 uh, the Jewish people of Germany and, and other European countries with terrible hate speech, uh, uh, the Nuremberg Laws, um, uh, the segregation of Jews into ghettos, and then eventually uh, their, you know, their transportation to the east where they were uh, killed in, in gas chambers uh, and, and, and by bullet. So uh, the, the, the Holocaust was a, was a genocide that unfolded slowly. 
And if you look back at uh, U.S. diplomatic policy, but not just U.S. diplomatic policy, other European countries, other parts of the world, it was it was it was it was a failure because we it was a failure of imagination because we just didn't imagine that the Nazis were capable of doing this. And uh, some people were, but but most weren't. And uh, so the point of prevention is if we had you know really stood up to Hitler in the 1930s or taken other measures, uh, maybe this could have been prevented. You know, you 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 use the word uh, delegitimize. Um, our last guest in the last hour, Rabbi Wexler, used the word dehumanize. It's 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 difficult for many of us to understand. I hope most of us how you can target a a an entire group of people for for uh, extermination. Except when you think, if you believe that they are a group of people that actually possess a disease and only that group can give it uh possess it and uh somehow they can give it to you or or it's whatever uh if you believe that they are what stands in the way of your success that there's some kind of uh uh you know in, it's an economic situation they're preventing you if you believe these things if you want to blame your lack of success or uh your your illness on in this case a group of people i can understand how people would recoil at that that was a, a campaign that was created. Talk to us about that kind of campaign, that kind of propaganda that made Jews, uh, that dehumanized Jews, and that, as you say, delegitimized them, which, which somehow made it okay for people to allow this to happen. Right. Well, I, listen, again, I think uh, uh, your previous guest was, was spot on about the word dehumanization. I, I didn't hear him, but I think what's interesting and terrible when you study past genocides, especially the Holocaust, is, as you say, the killing is typically preceded by a, a period of, of hate speech, of, of, of dehumanization, delegitimization uh, at, of the targeted groups. Uh, I mean, just as an aside, uh, you did not only see that in the Holocaust, you also saw that in a case like Rwanda, where 800,000 or so Rwandans, primarily Tutsi, were, were, were murdered within a three or four months uh, period of time in 1994. And what's interesting if you study that genocide is that there was also a period of hate speech and uh, the broadcasting of, of coded language. So, so speech is very much a potential indicator of concern. Now, what's, what's challenging for policymakers is that uh, all hate speech does not lead to genocide or mass killing. And so, you know, candidly, there is a lot of hate speech that goes on in the United States and in other countries where you don't expect or, uh, genocide uh, to be occurring. I mean, no one expects a genocide to happen in the United States. And so, but there are countries where you see hate speech where you can well, imagine one thing leads to another. You could imagine uh, that, that leading to killings. So well, you le I mean, yeah, but you mentioned Rwanda and you mentioned, uh, just, just quickly, you mentioned uh, it led from, from broadcasts. I mean, the, if, you, if I dig into that point, if I dig into that piece of history, there really was like, was it one guy? Uh, I mean, a lot of us saw the movie, uh, Don Cheadle movie, uh, Hotel Rwanda. Uh, wasn't it just one guy behind a microphone that was basically convincing a lot of, I think it's fair to say, fairly uh, uneducated or easily influenced uh, people uh, to to hate and then obviously kill? I mean, isn't, isn't that really what happened there? One radio station... Uh uh, in Rwanda, that was that famously, you know, broadcast this. But there were, but there were other people, uh, uh, government officials. Uh, uh, actually, there was just the indictment of a singer 
in uh, uh, conviction of a singer in Rwanda for for incitement to genocide, uh, who 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 sang coded messages, uh, essentially telling uh, uh, Hutus to kill Tutsi. So it wasn't just one person, uh, but but your point is well taken that it was um, uh, a. Uh, it, it was a concerted campaign of, 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 of... I think what I fear, and not to get too far off on a tangent Please. with our guest, Michael Abramowitz, I fear what I was talking about earlier. Not that I fear that it'll lead to genocide, but I fear that it leads to a dumbing down uh, and ignorance and a not remembering. I mentioned earlier, I think at every stage in our lives, we should remember and learn more about what the Holocaust or any other genocide is at every, you know, as a parent now, it, it, it takes uh, on a... Listen, listen, I'm not, I'm not, listen, clearly, clearly uh, hate speech uh, ought to be uh, repudiated, and uh, there, there, there are reasons why, uh, you know, we should not be talking about other human beings the way sometimes uh, certain people do. There's uh, I, I, I clearly not saying that hate speech is a good thing. All I'm, all I'm saying is that, you know, genocide is thankfully still a relatively rare uh, occurrence. And so uh, there, I'm just making the, the analytical point that sometimes, that many times hate speech will not necessarily lead to genocide. But there are other bad things that, about hate speech that we need to be concerned about. I think it leads to high ratings and ignorance, though. Yeah. And I think that there should be more uh, people doing what we're doing today. And I'm not, I don't mean to give myself credit, but I mean, I think that uh, media outlets should use Holocaust Remembrance Day as a way to, you know, program it. It's kind of an important thing to do. But uh, as I mentioned to earlier, guests, people tune in and hear me talk about Holocaust. Michael, you know what they do. They turn the channel to something uh, a little bit easier on a Monday morning. Right. Uh, I think the point, listen, I think, Pete, one point that I, uh, it's great that we're having this conversation today. But, you know, you know, the thing that's interesting is that the Holocaust happened, obviously, 70, 75 years ago. Um, it is, but it's not an ancient piece of history. It's still very relevant, and, and it still has lessons for us today. And it's important, uh, at least once a year, if not more, to be thinking about what the what the uh, significance for our society is today. And I think one thing, I mean, that's what we do at the Holocaust Museum. And if I could just put a little bit of a, a plug in for for my institution, we can talk about this more. But it's interesting, our institution. Um, opened its doors just about 20 years ago in 1993. So we're coming up on our uh, 20th um, anniversary. Uh, we are one of the most uh, uh, popular tourist destinations in Washington, D.C. We get 1.7, 1.8 million visitors a year, which is a lot for a museum. Uh, many, of those, many, of, many of our visitors are non-Jewish. Um, and uh, because we put the museum, because the founders you know, put the museum on our national mall, um, it is going to have a permanent place in American uh, consciousness. And so we are going to be, this, this, what you outline is, is what you think ought to happen. That's our goal, to try to preserve Holocaust memory and to teach people well, that's, that's, all time the, the, the significance of this event. That's important, and I'm really, really glad and heartened to hear that about how many people visit uh, every year. What I'd like to do, though, you know, what I'd like to see is is have a place like the Holocaust Museum somehow broadcast it in a way. It's great, but, but you know, people go to Washington mm -hmm. um, to get educated to some extent, to learn about our history. What age, what age do you think it's appropriate to bring your child to the Holocaust Museum? Because... I, my daughters are eight and five, and I, and I fear my insecurities as a parent in terms of how to uh, talk with them about where we're going 
and how to help digest what we've seen. Is there is there guidance that you give to parents? Sure, I think I think there's no one simple answer. Uh, of course, uh, some kids are more mature than other kids. You know, I I typically say that for our main exhibition, the permanent exhibition. I think you need to be about 11 or 12 to go to see that. Um, I think younger than that, it's a little bit too too heavy. But I would say we also have a very good and accessible smaller exhibition called Daniel's Story, which is really geared to kids 7, 8, 9. So there, even if you don't want to take your, 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 your child to the permanent exhibition, there are other things to see at the museum. You know, the other point I wanted to make to you, and this is, I mean, we could talk for hours about this, but, um, you know, we are now in a total digital age. So what we do, uh, there's a real potential for institutions, museums, not just the Holocaust Museum, but many, to, you know, to really kind of uh, live on in, in, in digitally. And one thing that is a major focus uh, of our work is to really develop our online content, our online educational material, and really push it out around the world. Right now, we are just to give you one example, which I'm incredibly proud of, is that we have uh, 12 or 13 languages to which our material is um, translated. So you can get our material in Arabic, Farsi, Urdu, um, uh, Japanese, Chinese, in a bunch of different languages. You know, where really there's not the kind of knowledge about the Holocaust here in the United States, uh, and so um, that's really important that. Um, we are taking our message, broadcasting our message around the world, if you will. And I think that over the next 20 years, when we celebrate our 40th anniversary, that you will see that um, I think the museum will have been, you know, we are, we are more than just a museum. The fact that we have a genocide prevention program is very interesting and unusual. But I think you're going to see more and more of us pushing our material beyond our walls. If I, if I bring my family, will you give us any kind of VIP tour, Mike? I will give you, Pete a VIP tour personally to whoever you want to bring with you. Look at that. Mike Abramowitz uh, is... And I know because Alfred is listening. Yeah, exactly. I'll mark that. (laughs) That you were going to hold me to account for that. So that's just not a a casual (laughs) promise. Uh, No, that was a much more selfish ask, so Alfred doesn't care about that. (laughs) Were you born and raised uh, in America, and and did you attend public education here? Um, Actually, I was born, believe it or not, in Hong Kong because my father was in the uh, U.S. State Department. And so I lived around the world uh, in, in different countries as I was growing up. But primarily, I did live in Washington. I consider myself a Washington native, but I did live around the world. I, I, I ask because I wonder how you feel about um, how the Holocaust and genocide in general uh, is taught in, in American public schools. Are you satisfied with it? Do you think there should be more? Should it be taught differently? Uh, should <laughs> I was talking about this earlier? Should we teach to the test, Michael LeBron? What should this all be about standardized testing when it comes to the Holocaust? Uh, because I think there's a, a lot better ways to teach. Of course, different controversy. Uh, what do you think about how it's taught in the American public education system? You know, you're you're, you're asking me a question that's getting a little bit beyond my comfort zone. Okay. Because we, but I'll tell you. What, listen, I think there is no question compared to twenty. You know, when I was growing up. Um, uh, now 35, 40 years ago, I'm just 49 now, you know, there really was not a huge amount of attention to the Holocaust in public schools. Um, uh, uh, and now a lot of public schools in America 
uh, do teach about the Holocaust. My daughter, who's in eighth grade, you know, her seventh grade class last year, she goes to public school in, in suburban Maryland. You know, they had a unit on the Holocaust. Uh, that she came downtown with her classmates to the museum uh, uh, for a tour. So uh, it, 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 that's different, I think, than it was 35, 40 years ago. I think there's been dramatic uh, improvement. Uh, one of the things that the museum does a lot of work on is with teachers. Uh, we do uh, training sessions about how to teach the Holocaust, how to improve it for social studies teachers. We have great networks of teachers who do great work on this. So I would say that I think that there's been a dramatic improvement over the last four years. Wh- whether it's perfect, whether every school is doing it properly, I can't tell you. But I think, there's, I think things are better. Well, we're talking to Mike Abramowitz, who is the director of the Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the U.S. Holocaust Museum. Uh, U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. Uh, back to that issue of prevention. You mentioned Syria right away. Uh, almost 100,000 people have lost their lives there. It's, I, I think, uh, are we calling this a genocide? Is it fair to call this a genocide? How does this fit with past uh, mass slaughters of human beings? And, and, and how, can you exp- how can you answer this specific question I asked earlier about the difficulty in preventing it, because as we look at it, there really doesn't seem to, and I've looked at it pretty pretty well, maybe not well enough, uh, it doesn't seem to be really any perfect answers on how to prevent it. Right. Well, Syria is an interesting story, and I make a couple points about Syria. Number one, we really, uh, I, I don't think we've had genocide in Syria. What, what genocide is about is about the destruction of groups. So, you know, like the Holocaust, it was about the effort to destroy the Jewish people. That was, so that is what genocide is. Um, mass slaughter, mass killing, as bad it is, as bad it is, is, and there are other crimes that can be committed, uh, you know, is not typically considered genocide by scholars. So in Syria, we know from the UN human rights people uh, and, and from other monitors that we, we we're pretty sure that there have been crimes against humanity, war crimes, um, uh, possibly in some parts of the country, ethnic cleansing. I think what we can say about Syria is that there is definitely a risk of genocide, that there are um, sectarian groups, uh, Sunni Muslims, Alawites, that could be the target of, uh, of, 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 of ethnic cleansing and, uh, ex- you know, and efforts to exterminate them in parts of the country. So I think what I would say is that Syria is a very terrible human rights situation, one of the worst in the world, and it is a definitely a place where there is, I would say there's a risk of genocide. In fact, we just uh, if you go to our website, ushmm.org, we just put out a very important, I think, interesting report by a former uh, ambassador at the State Department named Fred Huff, and uh, Ambassador Huff looked at this question of future scenarios of violence in Syria, and it was very sobering, and he did see that there is a risk of genocide. Where now in the world do we see uh, ethnic cleansing and the potential of genocide? Well, I would say, you know, that, that's a good question, and I think different people will, will, will differ. I would say the areas of the world that I think we're most concerned about right now, one would be Syria. I think also Sudan has always been an area of great concern for the museum. Um, and you had uh, the willingness of the authorities in Sudan to use ethnic, uh, I mean, to, to, you know, to deliberately target civilian groups. Uh, we believe there was a genocide in Darfur uh, a number of years ago. Um, 
it is there's still a civil war going on in parts of Sudan, and uh, so I would definitely be concerned about Sudan. Uh, but there's certainly other areas where, if not genocide, there are there is crimes against humanity either taking place or threatened. And uh, you know, I would uh, I would certainly say Democratic Republic of Congo is up there on the list. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, it doesn't get a lot of attention in this country, but I've been quite concerned about some of the recent uh, things that have been going on in Burma. There's some good things going on in Burma, which is there's been an effort of uh, democratization in Burma, uh, which is, uh, you know, you know they had, they've had elections. It looks like it's going, they, they released Aung San Suu Kyi. It looks like things are going in a more positive direction in Burma, but there is this concern of anti-Muslim violence. Uh, the Rohingya people are a stateless people. Who, who several hundred thousand live in in uh, in Burma, and they've been the target of uh, discrimination. And uh, last summer, uh, some some attacks uh, by by Buddhist mobs. So uh, Burma is something that I think people need to keep an eye on. Uh, well, listen, you know this is such a obviously uh, an important day, important week, an important issue, and. Uh, yeah, I really thank you for the work that you're doing, uh, your career. Uh, very impressive, of course. And we appreciate you joining us here in the conversation to remind us and to tell us about the great uh, work being done at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and uh, specifically the Center for Prevention of Genocide. Uh, we will we'll talk again whenever you want. We don't need a reminder. Whenever you guys are doing something, you want us to, to help you promote it. I, I'd love to uh, to do that. And, of course, I'd love to bring my family down there and to meet you as well, Mike. I would love that, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about these important things and the fact that you're taking this seriously really means a lot to us. So thank you. You got it. Yeah, All thanks, right, take Mike. Take care. Michael Abramowitz, and uh, check out the U.S. Holocaust uh, Memorial Museum. Let's go to Lou in Florida, and uh, if you want to join this conversation, you can always give us a call, 866-994-6343. Lou. Good morning, Pete. Good morning, Lou. Hey, I just wanted to um... – Actually, brought brought up a, one of the teachers I had back in the late 70s uh, at Miami Beach High, who was an amazing man, Dr. Igor Ranko. He'd wear short sleeve shirts. He had the tattoo on his arms. He was a Ukrainian. His parents were partisans. The Germans came into Ukraine and said, "Hey, we know you hate Stalin. You want to have a free uh, Ukraine? You know, fight with us, and we'll give you your independence." And of course, that lasted about two months when they overran Ukraine, and they were like, "Hey." We want our freedom now, so they put all the partisans in concentration camps. And uh, Dr. Renko was about five years old when he went into the camp. Uh, I want to say it was Buchenwald, but it, but I'm not exactly sure which one. And um, the thing that got me was after all that happened to him, he was four years in the camp. He, he lost a lot of family members. Uh, one funny aside, if there isn't any funny, the camp was liberated by one of the first. It was an all-black american tank unit really yes and the guys came through the gates in like a sherman tank the hatch opens up and it's a black guy and igor renko thought for like 10 years he thought god was a black man because hey here's my liberator and it's a black american tank driver when did he come correct and realize bright uh god wasn't in, in fact caucasian i don't know he, i think he you know uh, he likes soul music he probably never wrote like that. <laughs> that's a really thing. interesting story you know um, when we talk about when we talk about the Holocaust, I think it's important, as I've been prepping for this uh, this day and all these different guests, to to realize that there are millions and millions and millions of stories. Obviously, uh, well over six million uh, uh, humans, most of uh, which were Jews, but many of which were not, lost their lives. Six million that were killed in the Holocaust. Six million were Jews, and six million were others. 
Uh, yes, right. I should I should make that uh, that point. Obviously, and the yes. The thing about Igor is that the man would take kids to Oktoberfest in Germany. He learned German in the camps. He was not a German native, but yeah. he, he he loved Germany. And I, I I asked him. I said, "How how can you do that? You were brutalized and everything." He said, oh yeah, no, I know Jews in New York that won't even buy a BMW. Well, and and he just said, "I understand that people can be, you know, get, that can be follow these fanatical leaders, and that I don't blame the whole German race." You know, when you, you mentioned anything about Nazis, he would go ballistic on you. But he did not blame the whole Germanic. Uh, world and i i don't know if i could have done that i i just thought that was very yeah well we're going to talk later on actually uh, from that angle with uh, with a uh, university professor looking at contemporary germany and uh and and the holocaust but you know lou you mentioned 12 million i mean i was just going to say there there are just so many stories from so many different points of view uh, on the holocaust and it's important i think to to pick a few uh every year or whenever you want I was reading the front page of New York Times usually doesn't run an obituary, and now I can't remember the guy's name, but a a guy who is a uh, a rabbi in the U.S. Army, a chaplain, but a rabbi, uh, during World War II and came in after – he came in after the uh, Patton's Army freed a concentration camp. This guy came in with support groups that was going to help, you know, with all the with all the survivors. And they tell he tells his story, and reading his story was just, I mean, A, you couldn't stop reading it, and B, it was so important to, to read his perspective. And, and like uh, our guest said two guests ago, there's 192,000 uh, survivors in Israel right now. There's more across the world, but it's important to get their perspective and get their story, and there's just so many stories of survival. And I think— in the end, and a lot of reason why I'm doing this today is it, it's actually inspiring. It's inspiring to know that your problems that you're having today, even the worst that deal with disease and, you know, watching these parents last night on 60 Minutes who lost their kids. It's important to realize that in, in the face of the worst horror and terror that you can imagine, people do survive and they survive in different ways. That's what I wanted to say. Well, hey, one last thing, Pete, is that the, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if there's a correlation, but I do think in times of economic hardship is when these demigods can really get their grips on people that are, you yes. know, yeah, may because not normally. who to blame, who to blame. Exactly. And so I just think that it's, uh, you know, that's when you really have to watch. And I think in a weird way, even though it's the same culture, I do think there's genocide in my book in North Korea. I think they put thousands and tens of thousands of their own people in camps. They slaughter them. And, and I think that's a form of genocide of itself. I that's a great – no, no. I think that you're, you're definitely – I'm glad you mentioned that. Just two weeks ago, I don't know if you heard our guest. You must not have or you would have mentioned her just now. We had a guest on human rights abuses in North Korea, specifically just on that issue. So you're absolutely right. It's a great point. And Lou, I always Thanks value when you call. Thank you. Uh, Wade in Kansas. Yeah, I just had an interesting little bit of information. We had a – a Holocaust class in my high school, and there was a German foreign exchange student who had signed up for this class and didn't even know really what she had signed up for um, as far as the Holocaust was. They they didn't teach anything about it. She knew nothing about the Holocaust. Well, they do teach. They, I don't know what happened to that girl, but they, they obviously teach it in Germany. Well, I, all I know is she 
got up running out of the room crying the first day, you know, and basically never came How back. How old was she? Uh, it was my sophomore year in high school, so we were around 16. Oh, you're talking about years and years and years ago? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Well, that's terrible, Wade. I'm sorry to hear uh, that that happened, but they, they they and we'll talk about it later on with our guest uh, about what they they do teach in Germany and how they uh, modern day Germany deals with it. Uh, and uh, but we're going to take a quick break, 